mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Imad Udin is the author of two books, Jerusalem Gangster and My Land Palestine. Now, most of what we're going to talk about today is what you covered in your book, Jerusalem Gangster. Uh, I've yet to read My Land Palestine. Can you just kind of give me a description of that second book? Well, the second book is uh, basically based off of experience. What I did is most of my life I've had to defend uh, my ethnicity, my nationality. And uh, I, from years of dealing with people, I probably had this discussion thousands of times. So finally... Um, after learning so much, I decided that I was going to basically write a book. And if somebody wanted to discuss that issue and say, what about the Palestinian issue? I would direct them to the book. And the book is basically made up of information that is transplanted from other uh, books, um, Encyclopedia Britannica's, Wikipedia, the Bible, the Torah, which is the Old Testament, the Quran, and other historical sources. So I put that into one book and... Uh, basically, uh, you know, combined it together and say, here, this is my land, Palestine. You want to know about it, here's what it is. Now, has, it, has the book come out yet? It is available? It, it, it is available. It's, at, it's everywhere, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, uh, eBay. It's, 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 it's basically everywhere. Has anybody, Online, that is. Has anybody taken you up on that offer just yet? Uh, I think there have been some people, but there hasn't been any reviews because the book was only uh, published uh, possibly about two months ago or less than two months ago. Well, you know, I'm hoping that here, here obviously in the West, in the United States, um, you're going to get one particular yes. point of view. But, you know, thankfully, uh, in the information age, people do have the ability to, to reach out and search out things uh, that they may not get uh, through whatever it is, their public school system or through the media but, you know, like I said, yeah. most of what we're going to talk about today is what I learned uh, from working my way. And I'm still working my way through your book, um, Jerusalem yeah. Gangster. And, uh, you know, I've had the yeah. pleasure of being able to hear you on another podcast. And I've done that with several of my guests. And what I found is that uh, on, the, on the one hand, I kind of think to myself, well, it's kind of cheating uh, as far as a research tool. But at the same time, I find that I can hear the questions that other people ask you. And there are, there are things that maybe you don't answer. Um, or don't give the answer that I was not necessarily was hoping for, but maybe you don't hit on some of the some of the parts of the question that the person asked, and that gives me ideas of things that that I can ask uh, that maybe didn't get answered uh, in the things that I've listened, uh, you know, the podcast that I listened to you on. Um, now, the borders and the landscape of the state of Israel or historical Palestine uh, has changed a whole bunch of times over the last seventy five years. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. to paint a picture for my listeners. Can you just briefly describe what the geography was like in the late 60s and 1970s uh, when you were living there as a child? Because from what you've described in the book, it's, of course, a lot different than what we've got going on there now. Yes. Well, uh, when, when I was there, I will tell you that I haven't been there since 1978. So I could only talk about 1978. And from the, from the time of my birth to 1978, or from the time that I was able to understand uh, things as, as you know, growing up as a child. But I will tell you this, from the, when I was there, you could basically go, as a Palestinian, I could walk from Jerusalem. Let's say I chose to walk. I would walk from Jerusalem all the way to Tel Aviv and not be bothered with checkpoints and things like that. There was, of course, we were under the occupation. But you could go from the sea to the river, 
from the Lebanese border to the tip down, uh, which is Elat now, I believe, uh, which is the Red Sea, or to the Egyptian border, which is Gaza, and, uh, and, and roam freely. We were under occupation, but it was much different than now after the so-called peace process that happened. And uh, now with the peace process, I, I, I guess it's, it's uh, kind of gated everything, fenced everything, walled everything, and everybody's just trapped in a uh, different location. And, and, and if it took you 10 minutes to go from Ramallah to Jerusalem back then, now it would be hours because of, due to the checkpoints after the so-called peace process because certain areas are, are controlled by the, what's called what, you know, the so-called PA, Palestinian Authority. Yeah, it, it kind of struck me, and I had to remember when I started reading the book, you're, you know, you're a few years older than I am. Good, I mean, I'm in my late 40s. Um, I, mm-hmm. You know, have in my mind things that are like, you know, how they are now. And you talk about being in Jerusalem and the freedom of movement. I had to kind of stop and remind yes. myself that this was a good, you know, 50-plus years ago uh, when you're writing about that. Now, you've also written yes. in your book that as a child, um, and this, this was something that really kind of struck me, uh, you ate the scraps left on a windowsill. Uh, that after after lunch at school that the other kids had left and you you know you tried to do that um, kind of on the sly and it was you know you were embarrassed about your family's you know financial situation and being poor um, now how poor was your family and what what was the economic situation that really distinguished uh, the haves from the have-nots among the Palestinians at that time? Well, I will tell you this. Uh, now, my mother's brother, who's um, my uncle, he was living well. He had a taxi, which was a prestige type thing. He, uh, it was thirty thousand dinars to even get the plate for that. So he was able to do that. His son was able to eat good. He took care of his mother. He took care of his wife, so brothers and sisters. Our our economic situation. My mom and my dad was was uh, was very bad. So there were some Palestinians who were living very good, ate meat. I think I ate probably two or three candy bars my whole 12 years while I was there. Uh, there wasn't much meat. My mom would cook, you know, that uh, the, where the chicken legs, the claws, where the claws are usually, they throw that part away. She would cook it in a broth, and, and, and that at least gave the chicken taste in the broth with some vegetables. But our economic, we lived off of uh, um, a 100-pound bag of flour that was given to us, a can of grease, a bag of sugar and a bag of salt from Anwar, I believe, which is the United Nations, uh, or, 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 or through the, the social services that were provided to the Palestinians at, at the time. So we were, we were very poor. My dad was unable. He worked a little bit, but he was more being arrested and taken to jail. My mom wasn't working at the time. There wasn't much help. We just came out of a war. So most people kind of kept to themselves, but there was a lot of Palestinians that were living pretty decent. I mean, they had you know, ice homes and, and uh, uh, a, a decent way of getting income, uh, but not us. Now, you, you mentioned that your uncle had a cab, and you just talked about how there were some Palestinians who had some nice homes and they had some material possessions. What were they doing? Uh, what kind of jobs did they have? What kind of careers did they have that, that afforded them that opportunity? Uh, well, I mean, most of it, like my uncle was obviously the taxi, so he dealt with a lot of tourists. His main thing, he was stationed in Jerusalem. He dealt with a lot of tourists, people that were coming in. He uh, took them to different areas of Palestine. You know, tourists that come in. Uh, other Palestinians had mechanic shops, carpentry shops, 
uh, welding shops, you know, because that's very popular there to, uh, you know, where you, uh, people do very fancy things for fences and front door, you know, because you have your front yard before you get to the, to the house itself. So, you know, a, a lot of things like that, uh, construction, uh, building uh, with limestone, which is the way houses are built there, unlike here in the United States. So uh, there was things like that, you know. My, our problem, I think, because my uncle and my dad were so, or anybody like my uncle and my dad were so involved within the trying to liberate Palestine and against the Israeli occupation, that they kind of, the Israelis honed in on, the, on, on those people and those groups and kind of left the other ones that were living uh, without, uh, you know, saying, hey, this is wrong, we don't want you here, get out of here. With that type of stuff, they kind of didn't hone in on them, so they were able to live and make a living. Well, it sounds it sounds to me like a lot of tradespeople and a lot of small business owners. Um, now, exactly. You and 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 let me just say this to you. And when you went to the West Bank and and those little villages, they had olive groves, almond groves. Uh, you went to Jericho, there was the the oranges and the lemons. Uh, so you had the farmers also within the West Bank. And you had shepherds who had, you know, goats and sheep and things like that. But in the West Bank, the olive, olive oil trade, was, was, that was a way to make a living. Uh, the almond groves, the peaches, the plums. So the farmers and the, and the orchards. That's, that's really interesting. I know you mentioned oranges. I know that I've been told that Haifa is, is uh, famous, world famous for their oranges. Um, exactly. They are too, yes. You Jericho, know, Haifa, yes. I, I, I suspect that many people in the West, I know in the U.S. especially, don't really think too much about the fact that, you know, the Arab world is actually made up of both Muslims and Christians. Um, now what was the relationship like at the time you were living there between the Muslim and Christian Palestinians? And was there some sort of solidarity that might not otherwise exist? Or even now, is there, do you think there's a solidarity between Muslim and Christian Palestinians uh, that maybe wouldn't exist were there not the situation in, in, in Israel slash historical Palestine that, that they're dealing with? Well, let me say this. You said in the Arab world, Muslim and Christian. Let's add another segment to it. Let's add another group and the, the Arab Jews. There's Syrian Jews. There's Yemeni Jews. There's Iraqi Jews. There's Palestinian Jews. There's Moroccan Jews. So we also, it's the three communities that have existed together for many, many, for, for over a thousand years. It, it, you know, so is, has there been problems between the Muslims and the Christians? There has been problems, uh, whether in Lebanon, there was a big problem in Lebanon. Um, but for the most part, during Muslim rule for over 1300 years, most Christians and Jews were allowed to worship in their holy, uh, places. Uh, uh, if you look back, you'll find churches within the Arab world or the Muslim world that have been there for thousands of years. For 1,300 years, the Muslims ruled. If the Muslims actually wanted to, they could have wiped all those out. For instance, if we use the Taliban, when the Taliban blew up the, 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 the statues there in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, they did that because they ruled that part of the world. Whether some Muslims within the Arab world had wished they could have wiped out every 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 church or synagogue that has existed for thousands of years, but we but it wasn't done. For instance, when the Crusades, the last Crusades, or any other Crusades came in, they actually kicked the Jews out of Jerusalem and forbade them to come into the 
worship at the uh, Wailing Wall or Western Wall. But when Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, the great Muslim uh, 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 leader, came in and got uh, uh, Jerusalem back from the Crusaders, he was the one that allowed the Jews to come back in and worship there. So, I mean, throughout history, there's been problems. There's been problems. But I think for the most part, if you look for a, for long periods of time, Muslim, Muslims, Jews, and Christians in that part of the world lived peacefully together and coexisted. Well, maybe one day we can all we can have that again. Uh, I just wonder um, any any. So you don't you wouldn't see if if uh, if something magically happened and tomorrow we had this beautiful two state system where everybody kind of lived side by side peacefully that the relationship between the Muslims and the Christians in Palestine wouldn't change. Uh, you know what? I think the, the the situation in Palestine between the Christians and the Muslims is so unique because the because I I don't like using the word when I'm when I'm uh, 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 when I'm talking about Israel I don't like using the word Jew because it, it combines all the Jews into one pot. And what I'll say is Zionist, because Zionism and Judaism are two different things. Correct. Although some people may disagree about that, we have a lot of decent and honest and God-fearing Jews who actually stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. I think because the Palestinian Christians and Muslims have had to endure the same type of suffering at the hands of the Zionists, so we will leave the word Jew out of it at the hands of at the hands of the Zionists that they came by maybe not by by choice by choice but by force together and 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 and, and are basically in the same struggle. Right. So that's what that's what that's what makes that the the situation so unique. Has there been friction? Yes, there has. Is there hidden animosity here and there sometimes? With individuals, yes, but not as as a whole. Well, of course, you know, like I said before, they they do have common cause. So I would think that, um, yes, you know, they they could be united at least uh, to the extent of what they're dealing with. Now, I do want to move on. You've described your father as being an honorable man, but you've also described how physically abusive he was at home. Um, now, we'll get a little into that a little bit more later. But can you talk a little bit now about your father's absence from the home when you were before you moved here, and how your family ended up in Chicago? Okay, um, in 1973, my dad, right before 1970, my dad's sister was, is, was, a, was living in Puerto Rico. So she's an American citizen. She had constantly tried to pull my dad out of there by, you know, sponsoring him and bring him to the United States because it was virtually impossible for him to raise his family while constantly being arrested. So he would get arrested today. I might not see him for six months, eight months to a year, and then he shows up. And then he's out for a month or two, and then again he's arrested, taken, tortured, uh, whatever they did with him, and then released five months later, six months later. This is, this is what I remember. So in 1973, it came back, and he was granted permission to migrate to the United States. So from 1973 till 1978, my father was out of our lives. He was in the United States. We were in Jerusalem. Um, and it was is that enough for you, or did you was there something else? No, no. I was just I was kind of curious about his his presence there. Um, 
Now, you did end well, up in Chicago. Presence, his, his, his presence there, let me just say this to you. His presence there, although, you know, as a child growing up without a father, you miss your father. You're talking about from 73 to 78, that's five years. So you forget all the bad things. But if we rewind back to 73 and before, my father was abusive, he's beat up my mom. Uh, I think he's even hit me as a child a few times when my mom had to grab me and run away with me. Uh, he was a very violent individual uh, even before 1973. But, with you know, out of sight, out of mind, you forget that. You're living poor. You think about the United States, and you say, oh, yeah, I want to go there. Uh, because you, you're, you're, you're tired of that poor life, and you're tired of living as a child without a father but forgetting how he was before he left. Right. So in any case, you did end up in Chicago, and you have mentioned um, in your book and in the podcast I listened to, um, you were different than a lot of the other um, people with similar background, other Muslims, uh, other Arabs, uh, in that you grew up uh, kind of rough and that you had to learn how to fight at a very early age, and you described them as being yeah. passive. Talk a little bit about that. Uh well, I wound up in a school called Marquette School, and it was in the Marquette Park area. And in 1978 and before, Marquette Park was a very racist community. It was made up of very racist people. As a matter of fact, if you went down to 71st Street and about a block west of Western, there was a professionally painted uh, mural, professionally painted like jewels with paint, jewels, this was professionally painted. Not somebody went up there with a can of spray paint and scribbled. It was a sign that had uh, a, a big swastika in the center of it. And on the top, it said uh, white. And at the bottom, it said power. So there was a heavy element of, of that type of uh, people within the area. And there was a, a small community of Arabs along 63rd Street. And some of those kids came from that uh uh, those uh, that 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 small area. Many of the kids would be picked on, and they just wouldn't do anything. Um, some of them had just come back from back home, but some of but they were from villages that were quiet. There wasn't much Israeli movement during that time in those villages. The heavy heavy presence was when you're talking about the the western part of the country from Jerusalem onto the sea. So. They didn't have that element, so they didn't have where they had to constantly deal with uh, this occupation. The villagers freely lived, and every now and then maybe jeeps, Israeli jeeps would roll through there. But they were free to do as they please as far as, uh, you know, nobody bothered them. But in Jerusalem, there was heavy presence of Israeli uh, military. So, so there was, they were in and out of my house or my dad, or my uncle, or my grandfather. So I've had to see that, live that, and there was more of a revolutionary type uh, atmosphere within Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. So you're, you're they actually, didn't have that. They were passive. Right. So the, now the way you're explaining this now, it makes it sound like your, your fellow Arabs, your fellow, fellow Muslims that you grew up with were actually Palestinian. Was it a greater Arabic presence there? I mean, I know Chicago fairly well. And I know that Chicago yeah. has you know, a lot of different ethnicities represented. Was it particularly yeah. other Palestinians you grew up around, or was it more of a pan-Arab presence? 
No, no, mainly Palestinians in okay. that area. Okay. But if you look, but if you look at the if you look at the school I'm talking about, this was Marquette School, and 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 whatever the number of students there, when you're talking about the amount of Palestinians in that school, I guarantee you there wasn't any more than probably 15 kids. Okay. Wow. All right. No, I'm glad. Although there was a heavy Palestinian presence in that area. Uh, towards 63rd, it's very, it's very well known back then. When you talk about now, Bridgeview is called Little Palestine, which is the southwest side. But back then, majority of the Palestinians were in in uh, uh, the 63rd area, 59, 63rd, 67th that area. Okay, you know what? I'm really glad we got a chance to address that because you really did clear a lot of things up for me. And, and it was, a, you know, I the way it had seemed to me in the other interview I heard and in your book is that it was more of a pan Arab presence. But it does sound like you lived in, in a in a area with a lot more Palestinians. Now we could talk about the, yeah. the Palestinian and Israeli issue, you know, for years and years and years. But I want to focus exactly. more specifically on you and your personal experience. Uh, now, having said that, do you have? Uh, and did you have Jewish friends growing up in Chicago now? I mean, did you guys discuss the issue? Is it something that could be, you know, I, I know a lot of it, it, people are very passionate about it. How, what was your experience like? Well, my experience in Chicago, most of my time in Chicago has been around Latinos, some whites, and some blacks, but predominantly Latinos, especially if you talk about the first two years or the first year uh, from 78 to 79, going into 1980, I lived in that Marquette Park area. It was probably a year and a half in total. But then from there, we moved to a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, which was, um, you're talking about uh, 20 block different, going north and east. Now, the people in that area were predominantly Hispanic. There were some whites, but it was a totally di different atmosphere. 20, 20 blocks makes a big difference, a totally different atmosphere. The people were accepting. The people were, 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 there wasn't that strong element of racism and constantly being on guard that you were going to be fighting. It was much different. But uh, I, so I, my, my life has been, most of it has been around uh, uh, Mexican-Americans. Nope. And, and they were very loving, very caring. But there wasn't many, much Jews within the area. Most Jews in Chicago were either in Skokie or Highland Park. The northwest side, or north side, I should say. That, so there wasn't there wasn't much 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 Jews around to say if I had a Jewish friend. But I could tell you this: if there was some, and you grow up with them, they would be your friends. It it, it, it wasn't uh, like that, you know. Right. I, well, that's I mean that's good to hear. And like I like I told you just a few minutes ago, I'm familiar with Chicago. I have a lot of family. I've spent time growing up there, and. While I do have some uh, family who live in the city, uh, you know, my uncle, for the most part, uh, lives uh, north of the city, was in Evanston a long time, Lincolnwood, Skokie, like you were talking about. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Now, most people we know uh, end up getting involved in street gangs uh, as a way of uh, having another family. People who come from broken homes, they need some sense of community. They need somebody to look out for them, people to show them love. How did you get involved with street gangs? Well, I went to Seward School. And I and I met some local some some of the guys from the gang. And when you you're talking about back then seventh and eighth grade, you, these these are just guys who are just basically getting into it. They're they're uh, uh, they're not totally heavily into it. One or two might be, but m mostly just kind of shadowing. You know what I mean? Uh, liking the idea. Uh, so I met a few of them there. Now. 
going to the house after school, my father was so brutal. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about even killing him, as if you read in my book, possibly. I stole the gun to try to kill him. So I looked for avenues on how to get away from this guy. Uh, I even told my mom, divorce him, uh, please, divorce, you know. And my mom was an old-fashioned woman. She was a strong, good woman. And she was, you know, the embarrassment part of it. Divorce was very embarrassing, you know. So my, my option, I, eventually it came to mind that I was going to run away from home because I have somebody who will be able to take me, take me in, give me a home, give me a family, take care of me. Their mothers would be my mother, so to speak. Their brothers would be my brothers. Their sisters would be my sisters. And basically that's how I wound up getting involved in the gangs. I was already a knock-around kind of guy. I was already fighting. I was failing in school. I didn't care about school or education. I had too much on my mind on how to get away from this guy. So I was deep in, I was already knee-deep into negativity and failing school. So it really didn't matter. I just sunk deeper and deeper and deeper. And it seemed to give me, uh, once I left, I, I got a sense of relief. And I had somebody who was able to take me in and take care of me and, and be a brother and, and a father and a, and a mother to me at times. You know, and it felt good. And, and we all know that, you know, gang life and street life isn't just about protecting turf and looking out for one another. There's, there's always uh, no. work. They, they say work you have to put in. Now, you got involved in selling yeah. uh, street-level drug stuff. Uh, tell me about that. And, and I'm really interested. Now, you've, I've heard you again talk about uh, some of the, the volumes uh, of drugs that you were moving. Um, I know you said Super Bowl Sunday. There was, what, 40, you were doing $45,000 worth of business, um, you know, in the afternoon up to kickoff. Did you have an end goal? Did you were you saving up for anything, or I mean, what what did you do? What were your goals with the money? What did you use it for? Um, was there an end game? Let me say this to you: during my gang banging years before going to state prison, I never dealt any drugs. Of course, there was some. It was a totally different situation. It was after I got out of prison, and I had slowed down into the gang banging stuff because I had been to prison with guys who I almost killed and almost killed me, and we broke bread and we ate together. And I kind of thought, like, if I'm in here with these guys and we're like brothers and I get out, what am I supposed to go fight them again? So I actually went straight for some time, although I dipped and dabbed into the gang life, if need be. But uh, I, when I got out in 1987, the cocaine uh, uh, trade was so lucrative and big that I, if, you re, if, you, if you remember in my book, I talk about one of my friends who I left. We, we used to kind of didn't have $5 between each other. Uh, sometimes we'd have to pitch in to just to get $5 was basically making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Possibly he had already hit the million-dollar mark. But So it took me some time. I broke my leg and lost my job and then went back to hanging with this guy who was a good friend of mine and who was heavily into selling uh, cocaine that I got sucked into it. Cause it's, you know, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not, that's not an excuse. I liked the money. I liked what I saw, but I also, you know, I didn't want to get into it cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back to jail. I didn't want to go back to jail for nonsense. So, uh, but I got, finally I, I got into it and, uh, and I got into it big. I started, he went to jail and uh, basically there was nobody there. I coughed a little bit. 
and I started moving that. But I had already seen what it could do if I could get myself a good connect, and I got myself a decent connect, and then the big connect came to me who actually was supplying my connect. And did you, I know you've talked about, you didn't like to be flashy, right? You had a station wagon you drove to no, and from. No, no, I, I drove, I drove, I drove. I had nice, nice cars. I would take them out every now and then, but I was paranoid about the situation. And I actually still worked as a body man at the body shop that I was uh, arrested at. But I drove home a station wagon, a Crown Victoria station wagon, that an uh, old man or old woman or a mom or a dad would, would drive. It was a 1983 station wagon. And that's what I drove home, and I try to keep a low key. What now? Let me answer your question about what. Um, what was I saving up for? I really wasn't saving up for anything. I had nice things. I had a motorhome. I had uh, a Corvette. I had four Harley Davidsons. I had, I had, you know, tons of money. I, but I, I could have went and purchased certain things. I didn't purchase them. I helped out my family a whole lot, and that's all it was. Now, now I could have said. I could have said at a point, hey, this is enough, let's quit. But that type of, uh, you know, the, 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 the respect, the, the how people looked at you when you came down the street and things were people saying about you, that is probably the biggest drug of it all. That's a, that you know, same, that's a very interesting that way to the, describe it. It was the, the, the drug. It, you were addicted to the, to the notoriety and the respect and the, and the fear. I, I, I thought about a few times I even I thought about moving to Texas take my money take everything I got I told my guys listen man we're gonna shut down we're gonna get out of here we got enough money we're gonna get the hell out of here it was easier said than done it was way easier said than done you know the things that would come your way the opportunities that would come your way the merchandise that would come your way that how people saw you and how people greeted you you knew they greeted you that way because of who you were and what you were doing that was a hard thing to break that was probably as hard as maybe it's i'm exaggerating was somebody using cocaine I can, well, I can see that, and I can, you know, I've never used cocaine. I've never been addicted to it, but I think I can understand. I, it. I, yeah, I never I, used it. I, 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 I never used it, but we all have that image of how bad they're hooked on it, oh, and no, they of can't course. leave it, and they, you know, so, so I've never used drugs myself. I'm not a drinker. I've smoked marijuana. There's no denying in that. But I've hated the smell of liquor. I hated the taste of liquor. I hate, you know, getting sick. I did get drunk one or two times, and that was the end of it. That, yeah. I wanted no part of it. That was that was and, enough uh, for you. You know. That was enough for me. I, 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 I got drunk as a 15, 16-year-old gangbanger. I almost slept on the toilet, hugging it all night, puking. <laughs> and woke up with a headache the next day. And I said, you know what? I don't want no part of that. I think and most that of time, us have I been there. Much yeah. yeah I so think... so I, I said something that smells bad and tastes bad and makes you sick, what I want with it. I had tons of cocaine in front of me. I never did a line. I never touched it. I, I wanted no part of it because I seen what it did to people. And but at the same time, not realizing that I was hooked on a drug, and that drug was selling that drug and uh, fame, and uh, you know how people looked at you and so on. I had no idea I was also hooked. That's that's really an interesting way of, of putting it. Now I do want to get into eventually. You you did end up in state prison. You ended up um, coming in contact with Muslims. But something I actually just kind of thought of during this time, uh, when you're you're gang banging years, and when you guys did live, uh, you know, you were living in Chicago the first you know dozen years you lived here. Um, what was your relationship with Islam and your, your religious observance? It was zero and none. Zero and none. 
Well, you did an about-face, yeah, obviously. About. You, you have talked about um, being in the Cook County Jail and encountering Muslims um, and also going to prison. Now, was there any interaction? Uh, I know that most of us have heard. I know there are different sects of uh, Islam, uh, Sunni, Shiite, a yeah. uh, whole bunch of others. Did Sufis, you? You can't be in Chicago and interact with Muslims without coming in contact with the Nation of Islam, the black Muslims in America. What was your interaction, and what's your take on that interpretation of uh, and practice of Islam? Well, let me let me just start with this. Uh, the, the Arab community at the time in the 70s and into the early 80s was much more into secularism rather than a religious uh, uh, thing. Most, I don't even remember really much of a mosque during that time. I do remember there was like um, the, uh, you know, the certain villages had their own uh, uh, clubs, you know, ethnic clubs where they went to. Uh, certain political movements had their own ethnic clubs. Uh, for instance, the Popular Front for the Liberation had uh, an office and a, like, kind of a, where you went and played tennis and played cards and stuff like that, a social club. The, the guys with Fatih, which was Yasser Arafat's movement, had their own. And it was just people getting together to play cards or play, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the dice table, the dice table, I forget what they call it in English. Um, so there was that. There wasn't much religious talk. There was, it wasn't like it, it, it isn't like now where you have mosques everywhere and people flocking to go pray and so on and so on. So I, I did not have, and my father was a communist, so he, to this day, I don't have much dealing with him. To this day, he has nothing to do with religion. So I didn't know much about In the county jail, I actually did not encounter many Muslims. It was more of a gang atmosphere. In the state joint, I encountered a few Muslims. I encountered a white Muslim, which surprised me, but I didn't know much about Islam to begin with. In my life, at one time, I remember the situation was so bad with my father that I actually challenged God and said, why would you, if there's a God, why would you have this guy here with us doing this to my mom and doing this to us, which is basically hitting us, um, the physical and, and, uh, and the mental abuse. So I was basically just about an atheist. Now, to the nation of Islam, the nation of Islam, this is their teachings, this is what they teach, this is what they believe. But that's not orthodoxy Islam. That's not the Islam that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, brought down. I do deal with them a lot differently now. When I became uh, in federal prison, when I finally studied Islam and learned Islam, I had a lot of, what you would say, a lot of uh, negative interactions with some of them in jail because I felt like they were... Uh, I felt like they were teaching people the wrong Islam, that that's not Islam. So I've had arguments with them in federal prison. And a couple of times they almost came into a fist fight. There was a guy named Laron Jones. He came to my cell, and we were actually going to duke it out, you know, because of some of the stuff that I, that I said to him, which was, man, what, the stuff you're teaching is not Islam. You shouldn't be teaching people things like that. I think a lot differently now because they – they deal with the, with the African-American community in a way that they think works to uplift the African-American community. Is it Islam? It's not Islam that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, brought of 1,300 or 1,400 years ago or 1,300 and something odd years ago. That's far from that Islam. So there's there's very, very, very wide gap between Islam 
and the nation of Islam. That's very interesting, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to answer that for me. Now, one thing I did, uh, I do get a real kick out of, um, and I enjoy, is uh, I love a good Chicago accent. And one thing that I've noticed about you, you have a very interesting blend of your, your Arab and a Chicago accent. Um, you have spoken, um, and, and you know, another thing that I really enjoyed that I can identify with is, you know, here, you know, I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We're on the border with Mexico. And um, like you, obviously, growing up with a lot of Mexican-Americans, that's a very large community here. People speak Spanglish, and they sprinkle in different, you know, they might be speaking English, but they'll sprinkle in some some Spanish words, some Mexican-Spanish yeah. slang. And, uh, you know, I grew up, yeah, in a, grew up in a Jewish family, and Jews a lot of times will sprinkle in Yiddish, Yiddish words um, mm-hmm. here and there. And I heard you, uh, a very interesting conversation on the podcast I listened to, uh, you kept using the word fitna. Um, it, it, tell me what yeah. that means. It's just, I got a kick out of hearing that because, like I said, I'm used to that, and I'm used to hearing different ethnicities of people of different backgrounds sprinkle in words uh, into English uh, from other ones. But you talked about a lot of fitna you had with people uh, in yes. prison. T- talk a little, t- tell me what fitna means and, and, and talk a little bit about what, what those interactions were like. Fitna is, uh, let me give you an example, probably I could explain it, but, but uh, fitna can mean tri- uh, trials, you know, like you're being tried. Um, um, someone who causes, me and you are friends, right? We have another friend. He goes behind your back and says bad things about you to me. He goes behind my back and says things, bad things about you, about me to you. This is an individual who is causing a fitna between me and you. A fitna is actually a horrible thing to cause, which is mentioned in the Quran regularly about those who cause fitna on this earth. Uh, Satan coming to you and whispering certain things and cause you to do certain things, he's causing a fitna. Uh, this is what fitna means. Someone who causes mischief, someone who causes problems, someone, uh, a situation that is causing, between the Palestinians and the Israelis, there's a big fitna. I got you. Okay. And you know what? I know there's a Yiddish... That's what fitna means. There's a Yiddish counterpart to that word, and I can't think of it right now. But you talked about something very interesting, and you're not... I actually heard it, the same terminology from somebody else recently in a documentary I was watching. When you talk about, and when this person talked about coming to Islam, they didn't say the word convert. They said revert. And I've heard revert. you explain that. Uh, I find that very interesting. Can you, can you explain yeah. that for, for me, what that means? I, I, I sure will. Um, revert. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, every child is born with fitrah, meaning the knowledge of God, that there's only one God. And it is only as he grows, depending on his mom and dad, if his mom and dad are Christian, he becomes a Christian. But at birth, he is a Muslim. He is a Muslim simply, which means that he is, his whole will submits to God. This is why little kids, when you say to them, where is God, they point to the sky. And not knowing anything about God. So they, they have that fitra, which is total submission to God, they, you know. And it is only as they grow up, if their mom and dad are Christian, they become Christian. If their mom and dad are fire worshippers like the Zoroastrians, they become fire worshippers, and so on and so on. So when we say, when one becomes a Muslim, it is rather than converting to Islam, you are reverting 
to your nature, what you originally were born. Muslim, which means simply, like, as you well know, the three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity is named after Christ. Judaism is basically derives its name from Judah. May the peace and blessings of God be upon him. From Judah, who was the head of the tribe of Judea, who was nicknamed Jew by his people, where the term comes from. So Judaism is named after Judah. Islam is not named after any individual. It simply means one who submits his will to God physically and spiritually. Physically meaning clean, circumcised as Muslims and Jews do. And, and spiritually is that he only worships one God, the God that sent uh, Abraham, who is the, who's known as the friend of Abraham, who is known as the protector of Musa, who is known as the, the creator of Jesus and the guide of Muhammad, peace be upon them all. That is a fantastic explanation, and I thank you for that. And it's very interesting. Like I said, I heard somebody else talk about that uh, on a documentary not long before I, I started reading your book, and I, that's the first time I'd heard somebody speak that way. Now, you yes. obviously are no longer in prison, and you are doing what yes. um, you know some people have, have come to do when they, when they get out of prison and they turn their life around. You do a lot of outreach work with the gang community. Yes. Um, who yes. are you affiliated with? Do you have an actual job? Do you work for somebody or a nonprofit? Uh, yes. And what exactly yes. do you do? Uh, I, I, I've, uh, just so you know, I, I, I was released from prison in 2004, uh, May 2004. Before being released from prison, I was a part of a group called JAG, Juvenile Awareness Group, for about three years in Milan, Michigan. And they would bring at-risk students or kids to the visiting room on Wednesday night, and we would lecture them. I was a part of about eight, eight groups. One of them was my boss, Frank Calabrese, from the Family Secrets trial. He was on the panel also. One of them was actually a very good, decent human being who is, uh, was a Jewish professor who taught at the University of Michigan who unfortunately became addicted to crack cocaine and started robbing banks, and he was doing, a, I believe, a 20-year sentence. He was with me. He was one of, sometimes, my mentor. You know, he's a, he's a professor, very decent guy. And, and what we did is we lectured these students. One day out of the year, we would get students from, the, I believe, the University of Michigan who were studying law to become attorneys and possibly police officers who came in, and we did a Q&A. So I did that for three years before getting out of prison, federal prison. But when I got out of prison, I, from 2004 and moving forward, whenever I had time, I volunteered with a group called Ceasefire on 63rd Street. They were at that. They were all over the city, but I volunteered in that area, and I would sometimes spoke at, the, at one of the high schools in the area, which is called Hubbard High School. Um, but, so in 2019, after publishing my book, I, sh I basically, I had a small trucking company. I, I, I was going through a divorce. I said, I'm done. I basically by 20, I was already getting out of the trucking. And I said, you know what? I want to do this full time. I want to help the community. I want to help young people. And I became, I worked for um, an organization called SWAP on the south side of Chicago, which was, was a part of ceasefire on one time. I was there not long. And then I moved to another organization called Aclavis, where I am currently employed. And what we do, I am a hospital responder right now. I'm a follow-up coordinator. And what we do is when someone shot, 
stabbed or beat up, a hospital calls us, we come in. Uh, most of these, some of these individuals, not most of them, some of these individuals might not have family there at the time. They're shot up, they're stabbed, or they're beat up. We try to get them back to school. We basically offer them services, talk to them, and try to get them out of the streets and into school, out of the street and into jobs, out of the street and into sometimes housing is very difficult, but most of them have a, have a home. So this is what we do now. Uh, also, we try to stem the violence. He's shot. He's upset. We try to calm him down. There are sites in the area where he was shot. Let's say he was shot in North Lawndale or West Garfield or Little Village. There's a site in that area. We let that site know there was a guy shot, let's say, at, at Pulaski and Madison. They converge on that area. That's those individuals from that site. Um, and try to calm the situation and get to where hopefully cool heads prevail and no more shootings. Now, for that day at least. For that day at least. Do you have you ever? You know, because you can't control everything. Right now, you I would hope in a in a very large, uh, very culturally diverse city like Chicago that it wouldn't be an issue. But have you ever run into somebody who uh, you maybe you wondered how how well you would be received because of your background, because of your accent? Uh, I don't know how you present physically if you wear clothing that people might associate with uh, non-Western clothing or with Islam. Have you ever had somebody who might be hesitant to to accept your help or to listen to you because of that? Uh, no, never. For, and then I dress like I dress like everybody else. I mean, I jeans and okay. uh, you know I have my I have my shirt which has my uh, uh, the organization I work with on there. And I'll give you the organization so that way you know the organization is called Aclavis. It was started by an African American individual who's actually in a wheelchair was shot about 24 years ago, 23 years ago, something like that. A very decent human being. Uh, uh, so the organization is made up of individuals who had, who come from our background, the background that I'm talking about, that you know, the gangs and the prisons and, and so on and so on. So I, I, we sometimes walking in, all of us, all of us, to talk to someone, they're already on guard because they think that we don't, they don't understand that we come from their background. So they're already on guard. They don't want to talk. They think we're medical staff or we work for the hospital and we're just coming there just to get some information. But once... Once, you know, we, so we get the, 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 the hard ones sometimes, but once they hear, look, look, I come from the back of the yards, I'm from 47th Street, I'm, I come from the same background you come from, I've been to the joint, I've been to the county, I've been to the, the 11th and Hamilton, which is juvenile, county, state, and feds, I've done 15 years in prison, and blah. once they hear that, they simmer down, and now we're fine, we can discuss certain things. Now, you do have people who have mental illness sometimes, and it's very difficult to get through to them, but that's one out of ten. Most of the time, these people want to help. They're stuck in situations. They would like for a way out, but they don't know how. Sometimes something could be right in front of you, and you can't see it unless until someone points it out. You say, wow, it's been there this whole time. I didn't know it existed. You know what I mean? So, no, I've never had that. I, a lot of people, when I talk to people, they think actually... When they see me, they think I'm either Puerto Rican or Mexican. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear yeah, that I... people are receptive. Now, you've also yes, talked about something that, um, you know, you know, I like to think that I'm pretty knowledgeable about the world and about, you know, things. But you've talked before about being kind of in a no man's land uh, when it comes to your citizenship or your immigration status. Um, and, yes. you know, just talk for a few minutes about that. Uh, and why you can't get back uh, home, and why you can't get citizenship here, and 
you know, what that no man's land is like for you? Well, here's the thing, and I'm the first to take responsibility, but I will say this. I messed up. I messed up. There's no doubt about it. I messed up. Even when I knew better than to mess up, I messed up. We could blame my father in the beginning of well, the things he did and caused me to, as they say, had judged that, which means he, 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 he drove us away. He drove us away. In the beginning, you know, my teenage years and so on. So I screwed up due to those circumstances. But later, I, had, I could make some decent choices, and I chose some bad things. But... Um, so that caused me, that caused me, I, you know, I had never become a citizen. I was under a green card, which was a permanent residency, right under a citizenship. And in 1996, when they passed the anti-terrorist bill after Timothy McVeigh blew up the Murrow building, uh, the immigration laws became draconian, basically. Very terrible immigration laws. Under no circumstances, they didn't want to hear it. They, you know, you made a mistake, we're going to deport you. So when I finished my sentence, I went through a process in Oakdale, Louisiana, and I was deported. Either you, you accept your deportation or you could stay in prison. So they deported me. But since I was born in Jerusalem and I don't have a country, Israel doesn't recognize me. They don't allow me back in. So I can't go back to Jerusalem. But even if I did go back, given the circumstances, I would probably be in prison, tortured, and eventually probably killed. Who knows? Could I, would I be quiet? No, I wouldn't be quiet. So that would cause certain things to happen. Uh, so now I am deported, but what is called, we're called non-removable aliens, which is Cubans, Vietnamese, Iraqis, Iranians, and probably some other Laos, Cambodia. Probably those are still on the, on the thing, too. So you cannot remove them. Once upon a time, they kept you in jail, Okay. There was Cubans who came on the Marielle boat lift who had been finished with their sentence 13 years before and were just sitting in federal prison for 13 years on no charge or anything but simply because of their immigration status. So now I am what, so the, the, the Supreme Court finally ruled in the uh, late ni- 90s or early 2000s that if you cannot remove an individual to his homeland, you have six months to do it. If not, you have to release them into society, given that they're not a threat, they're not a nut job or so on and so on. You know, they're not going to go out and kill everybody because some people have mental illness and they can't even function. Right. But, so I was released into society, into the United States, in May 2004. I should have been out. Long before 2004, I should have been out in 2003, but I wasn't due to the immigration situation. So I was deported there. So they gave me a, a, my Social Security card back, but it st- states on the Social Security card, for work purposes only authorized by Department of Homeland Security. So I have that. I'm able to get a driver's license. I'm able to do everything any other citizen is able to do in this country, run a business, own a business. Do a job, but unfortunately, if I was, let's say, to lose my job, I can't get health insurance from the government, which is Medicaid or Medicare, because of my immigration status. The craziest thing you could collect my taxes, I could do everything, but I can't get you know, because sometimes we lose our job and so, so on, and you need insurance, but I can't get that insurance. So, right now, I am basically in no man's land in the sense that I'm not a citizen, I'm not, uh, I don't have a green card. And they say, whenever there's a Palestine, you ha- we're going to deport you back to Palestine. 
That is quite interesting, and it's something I never would have imagined had I not heard it from you. Now, um, yeah, and I so, so I've been living like this for for uh, uh, what seventeen, almost eighteen years. Where a, I have to go once a year report to the immigration in downtown Chicago. If I wanted to go from Illinois to Wisconsin, I would have to get permission to go. That's that is Not amazing. Outside the country, that's amazing. And and, and it, yes, and it's and it's and it's and it's unbelievable. And for us Palestinians, this is why when you, if you read my book, uh, that the new one, I'm basically arguing to say, how are you, the United States, who aids and abets? Israel, the Israeli government, in taking our land and have done it for seven decades, you and the British in particular, for seven decades, we would have never left our homeland if it wasn't for you aiding and abetting the Israeli government. Tell me you want to deport me. And at the same time, you're still giving them funds uh, in the billions every year, military uh, assistance, moral assistance, uh, spiritual assistance, and so on. And yet tell me you want to deport me there. It's 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 a very very insulting situation. Well, it is it is odd to say the least. Now, you uh, like me are a father of a daughter. I have two daughters. Yes. Uh, it sounds to me like you have that. Also, has given you almost, uh, if if you will, a new purpose in life. My daughter has given me every purpose in life. There you go. My daughter, my daughter is my daughter is my whole. I live for my daughter. I live for my daughter just like I live, and I feel bad. And why I feel this way about my daughter, because I see the state of the situation for kids in this country and the whole world. But I am in this country, so I'm able to see it. Many kids in this country are born to individuals in these disadvantaged communities that don't have, they, all the odds are against them. When I look at my daughter, I say, I have to do make sure that my daughter, since she's a, a female, a girl, she's going to be a woman. And I see the state of the, what women are basically. Since I live here, I'll talk about here. They're an object. And even though they think they're not, many are not, but many are an object. And I just want to make sure that my daughter has a fighting chance in this society in this society. So my daughter has given me, if I believe she's saw, she's hit spots in my heart that have not been, she softened my everything around. Me. If I had a hard part in my heart, in my heart, she softened it up. Well, that's what, that's what daughters do for us. Imad. Uh, I got to wrap things up. Yes. I do want to talk about a few things, you know, a few more things real quickly. Chicago is one of maybe four or five in the United States that we can call the absolute best cities to be in if you're a sports fan. Uh, have you taken to uh, basketball and American football and baseball? You won't believe this. I'm not a... I live in... I live my back... The White Sox are basically in my backyard, and I'm in their backyard. So the White Sox is not because I love the game, but because I love the team. Okay. Okay. So White Sox is definitely in my heart because that's in my backyard, and I'm from the south side of Chicago. Uh, as far as sports, when I was in Jerusalem, I loved soccer. Once, when I came to this country in 1978, there wasn't hardly any soccer, so it faded out of my life. I've never saw any interest in football, basketball, or any of that, so I'm not a sports fan at all. Okay, well, you don't get much more American than baseball. Now, I can't talk to you, I can't talk to anybody from Chicago without talking about pizza. Oh, yeah. You're, do you have a favorite? Uh, I, I, I'll tell you this. Um, Home Run In is one of my 
one good pizza. But uh, uh, Giordano's has been good. Uh, there's some others. But I'll tell you this. There's a small, pla- small place on the south side of Chicago, very small place. Uh, it's called Edie's, I believe. It's on Archer Avenue, and they have the best pizza as far as I'm concerned. Thin crust. I'm a thin crust uh, pizza guy. I don't like the – I don't – I'm not – so, so a little bit of dip, deep dish, but I'm very, very big on thin crust pizza. And I, to me, they make the best thin crust, thin crust pizza in the city I've, that I've had. Well, I personally, I like a good stuffed pizza, and I've always said that you could talk to 100 different people from Chicago, and you'd get 100 different answers when you ask where the best pizza is. But I'm with you on Giordano's. That's always been my favorite. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, yes. Imad Udin has been my guest today. His book's Jerusalem Gangster and My Land Palestine are available basically anywhere you get your books. Imad, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. We've, I know we've gone over. I told you this would take about 45 minutes. But um, you've you're, you got way too many good things to say uh, and way too interesting a story for me to, to try to pare it down to 45. So I'm glad we are able to do this today. Thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode of the Square Peg Podcast as much as I have with my guest, Imad Udin. Thank you very much. We thank, will, you, thank you for being with me, Imad. Ladies Thanks. and gentlemen, we'll have another episode for you very soon. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.